Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I just think being saddled to the idea of cost of living, as we said a few weeks ago, is too broad and they've got to chunk it down. So you've got a cost of housing, you've got a cost of energy, you've got a cost of groceries, cost of raising kids, and actually chunk it down and look at where government can make a difference and where they can work with groups in society to make a difference. Hello, lovely potters. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me down the line from Sydney is the ever wonderful Peter Lewis, the executive director of Essential Media. Hello, Peter. Hello, Catherine. I've never seen you with reindeer ears on before. It's strangely becoming. Merry Christmas. No, just I just want to stress for the benefit of the listeners that they are imaginary reindeer ears <laughs> that Peter Lewis is seeing on my head. Which you promised to dress up. I that's, thought yeah. that's I did I did it a spiritual way. Okay. Rather on than on the inside, a, you're yeah. covered in tinsel. Exactly. Exactly. Adorned always. But anyway, as Pete is alluding to. It is the final pod show of the year. With the us. final polling pod show of the yeah. year. I've got <laughs> sure one more you've pod got to someone do. Someone better for <laughs> the last one, but yeah. <laughs> no, I've got one more pod to yeah, do. Yeah. Yes, the final show about polling for the year. It is Christmas very shortly. I can't quite believe we've made it, but we have almost at least. And Christmas cheer will shortly be flowing throughout the land, except our poll this week suggests that Christmas cheer is not really Mm. in abundance for a whole range of reasons. And obviously, I'm not making light of those reasons. It's been a really difficult year for so many people. And it's been a harder year, I think our numbers show this, Peter, uh, than a lot of Australians expected. It's panned Mm. out a bit worse than people were braced for. And also our numbers tell us that people think next year is not going to be too crash hot as well. So let's dive in and let's start with the cause of a lot of people's unhappiness, which is the sustained cost of living pressure that people are facing. Certainly evident in this final survey of the year. It's been evident now for Uh, I think, several cycles of the survey that people are worried about cost of living pressure and they think not enough is being done. Yep. The national mood this Christmas is kind of somewhere between ho, bloody ho and bar (laughs) humbug, I think. Mm. We've got 
few numbers to throw at you. Reflections on 2023. Was it worse than I expected? <laughs> Half the people say that. Only 13% thought it would exceed and it had a pretty low base. They think next year is going to be worse, as you said. Mm. 32 think it'll be worse than a bad year. And you're right, driving that, 79% think energy prices are going to be higher next year. Grocery prices, 73. Housing prices, 68. Interest rates, 59. And the only things that people don't see going up are um, wages. It feels like that notion of material circumstance is now defining the way people are looking at politics more than I think I've seen. Oh, for, for maybe for maybe a while. I'm, I was going to say forever, but I'm trying to think through where it, when it's been this bad. So I'm a little bit young to remember the interest rate when the interest rates went into like up in the high teens yep. under Keating. I imagine it would have been a bit like that. At the time, um, interestingly, he survived that as well. Yeah, with the, winning the unlosable election, which is thirty years ago, isn't it? Ninety three, and the government is—you can't say it's bearing a consequence because it's merely polls, and as we say, it's at this stage just a barometer, not a a predictor. But there are a whole lot of of numbers here that say that those material conditions are not totally divorced by people's view of the performance of this government, but also government as... A concept. As a concept. We can get that a bit more in a sec, I think. But, you know, one of the things I've been reflecting on is we talk a lot about the Albanese part of the Albanese Labor government and a lot about the Labor part of the Albanese Labor government, but there is also the government part. And Mm. I think... At this moment, with these numbers, is worth reflecting on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And almost like we planned this, Peter, we are going to reflect on that because we should sort of set this proposition up for the listeners by confessing that you and I mutually obsessed with the trust measure Mm. in the Guardian Essential Poll series. You and I became mutually obsessed by this number during the pandemic because we were mapping this very closely because back then it's sort of, and we're talking sort of late 2020 and it spilled over into 2021, there was a really significant rebound in institutional trust in Australia. And if we look to other measures uh, like, and the one that comes to mind for me most readily is the Scanlon uh, Foundation Mm. numbers about, which is a project about social cohesion but they have a very long-running trust, institutional trust set of measures that sort of mapped this whole kind of trajectory, basically, that from about 2007, really, the sort of mad decade in Canberra where there was a new prime minister every five minutes, that caused trust in their numbers to absolutely plummet. And then during the pandemic, both in the Guardian Essential poll and also in the Scanlon numbers, we saw this rebound in trust over that very sort of tumultuous 12 months, first 12 months of the pandemic when we were in the lives and livelihoods stage of the pandemic management. And so we've come off a ways. So let's bring the listeners Mm. up to speed with where we are now. Well, there's been 
a significant dip from those halcyon days where best part of two-thirds of us said we trusted the government to act in our interests, I think, was the full formulation, I think, or just we had trust in these institutions and that was when the world was going into this crazy place that we didn't really understand and I think we appreciated institutions that that stepped Mm. up, health authorities, parliaments. There was a sense of collaboration. It wasn't partisan. It was just on the job. And the simple narrative would be to say that we've dropped away from those high points. What really strikes me on these numbers is it hasn't been a slow ebbing since that it's actually been a double digit drop in the last 12 months. And so that makes me think it's more about material conditions as well. But also I think a little bit about the increasing erosion of central points of truth as well, because the other story this year, of course, apart from cost of living has been the failure of the referendum for a First Nations voice and the way that that really just dispersed Mm. (laughs) disinformation, it drove division and undermined trust in institutions, ended up the bizarre thing that a vote to change the nation was seen as a vote to uphold a status quo so angry outsiders against elites voted no. Now, this is all context to these numbers dropping off, but the drop in trust across the board from scientific bodies down 14 points from 72 to 58, still a majority, Mm. but a bare majority, Mm. to the federal parliament, which is bottom of the pops, which has gone from 48 to 34. Now, that's not on the government, the Albanese Mm. government, that's on the federal parliament, which objectively has kind of been delivering things. So it's not even, I think, linked to performance necessarily. But yeah. that that diminution of public trust, which is part of what holds the show together, yeah, it's 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 striking for me. Um, it goes back to that proposition. So part of, and I don't want to get to the end of our discussion, but if government is something that people don't trust, then incumbency no longer is an asset. That if you are actually holding government, then you are something that a lot of people see as untrustworthy and the Mm. problem rather than something that has a degree of social licence to to lead. So there was another one in there that I just wanted to draw people's attention to, which on one level appears to be a contradiction. So a majority of people say the government's got too much (laughs) power, but three quarters of them want them to do more on stuff. So there's this kind of... Yes. I, sorry, I might have no, jumped. No, no, jumped no, no. You didn't at all. That's weird, isn't it? No, what no, you, no. Yeah, yeah. Was, I was, I was going to put that to you. Actually, it's sort mm. of in this segment of the conversation because it, it struck me too. We're clearly in two minds because at one level, we've got a fifty-one percent of us think the government's got too much power. At another level, close to eighty percent of us want governments to do more. So it's a bit of a conundrum. But I think the conundrum leads back to your point, Peter, which is that how we are feeling about life and our material circumstances at the moment is bleeding into our perceptions 
of all kinds of things, including these institutions that we're talking about. Because the interesting thing about the fall in institutional trust, as you say, it's double digits for state and federal parliaments. Interesting. But it's also a fall in in trust in police and justice systems, a fall, as you said, Mm. in trust of scientific bodies, as you said, a fall in trust of federal health authorities, right, which you might think is some sort of, uh, sort of backwash out of the pandemic to the extent that that was a cycle that people rode as well, where we there was this uptick in mm. trust and then obviously there was the sort of psychological strain associated with long lockdowns and, and health mandates and all this sort of stuff. So perhaps it's a bit of a backwash of all of that. Mm. But I think, look, we, we don't know because obviously we can't see directly into the minds of the thousand-odd respondents to our poll, but it seems an utterly reasonable supposition to start from the point that we feel bad about our material circumstances and a bit out of control about life and then dis- disaffection and dissatisfaction then gets projected onto a number of institutions that very much part of Australian life, I reckon, I mm. reckon. So my final tortured metaphor of 2023, you're welcome, <laughs> is a little bit provincial but very deeply personal to me, which has been the absolute traffic jam that is the new West Connects, which is on my backyard of the inner west of Sydney, which is basically a a giant portal to a private motorway that's been popped on top of the public transport system and roads of the inner west of Sydney. And when you sit in there, you kind of know all the decisions that have been made that have got you to this standstill and you just feel like there's no way out. You feel so angry. And to me it feels a bit like that's the way the year feels, that we feel stuck. Like mm, Feeling stuck. We've, got, yep. we've had a change of government but we know that there was already self-imposed parameters on what they could do because of the decisions they made to not fight an election on a whole bunch of issues like national security and, and taxes. And then you've got this sense that we're not doing enough on climate and there was nothing that moved on voice and interest rates keep going up and you can't see anything happening on housing and you just your 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 knuckles on the steering wheel get wider and wider and you just want to beep the horn and you're not it's not that you're angry at anyone in particular but you're just in you're just in the in the mess and you know that it's not going to get any better anytime mm. soon and i reckon that feels like i don't know if i'm projecting too much <laughs> of my personal experience onto the rest of the nation but it made me feel like i could understand why all these numbers are sitting <laughs> it where spoke they are. to you yeah well obviously this logjam is uh, given uh, given it's it's been the subject of quite a lot of coverage and obviously i know that part of sydney very well so yeah it would be annoying but yeah i i totally get where you're going with that that people feel stuck in events that are outside their control, that are bigger than them, outside their capacity to influence, possibly angry at institutions for institutional failure to ameliorate these forces or engage with these forces, Mm. perhaps. I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting. And almost resenting government can't solve your problems at the same time as you see what they're doing is making it worse. And again, I'm talking about government as as a class. Um, 
One of the things I've done in my final column is try to look at the difference between government as a noun, which is the thing that holds power, and governing, which is the thing government does. And I just feel that that talks to that contradiction. Government as the noun has too much power, but we want government, the verb, to be doing more governing. exactly, exactly. And as always, you can find Peter's column on the Guardian app or on the Guardian Australia website if you are pretending to work but not actually working as we Mm -hmm. creep towards Christmas. So go and have a look at that if you want to see traffic in the inner west of Sydney extrapolated into the mood of the nation, go have a read of that. It's excellent as always. Now, we made the point just in obviously saying that there's this decline in institutional trust and parliaments and institutions. There's a difference between government and governing, and there's also a difference between parliament and the incumbent government of the day, the Albanese government, which is me setting up the fact that the Albanese government is now absolutely demonstrably post-honeymoon. I think we can see that. Mm. We can see it in the primary vote in the in the two PP. We can see it in uh, approval and disapproval rankings also in these sort of measure. I don't know, what do we call this sort of sliding scale of from how do you rate I the leaders. we should call it a spectrum. Yeah. I think it talks to leadership. <laughs> yeah, anyway, <laughs> stay with us. Stay with us, listeners. We will keep this together yet. So in the latest, uh, in the latest survey, basically, we've asked respondents to say, uh, do you feel positive about the Prime Minister? Do you feel positive about the opposition leader? Or do you feel negative about them on a sliding scale? Yeah. Right? And the, yeah. what... One to ten. Thank you. And what the results tell us is that people less enamoured of Albanese than they were, obviously, at the peak of the honeymoon, a bit more enamoured of Peter Dutton now than in the past, although I think his gender gap's quite interesting. But anyway, so let's that's that's the kind so of So if we if we take the marker at the end of last year, Prime Minister's positives, which is people that rate him between 7 and 10, has gone from 46 down to 32. Yeah. Yep. And the Negatives. negative has gone from 23 up 37. to 37. Yeah. So, so, you know, we'd say that he's gone... He's net negative five when at the beginning of the year he was net positive 23. Yeah, that's, that's, that is a turnaround. That is a curve, yep. Dutton isn't much better, though. He hasn't been the sort of the beneficiary of this. In fact, his numbers are a little bit worse. His negatives have gone up from 33 to 37 and his positives of 29 to 28. So he hasn't had that same he, – he's just in that same level of – not a whole lot of love. I think that the story has been Albanese. Yeah. Normally we have, and it'll be interesting when we come back from summer. Normally the summer break pushes incumbency up a bit because people aren't thinking about all this stuff over the summer. But it's halfway through a term. I actually thought if there was anything for the government to take away, it was that there was a bit of movement in the last week in the parliament. I know there was the noise around the high court decision, but there was also the workplace laws and the nature laws and NDIS yeah. that all kind yeah. of it, landed in their own ways. Yeah. And, in that governing you know, space. I don't, I don't yeah. think this is, yeah, I don't think there's flashing lights or anything yet from the government. You know, historical context, there hasn't been a single term government, I think, since um, the depression of 32. And I don't think even the worst economic prognosis says we're going to end up in that sort of financial situation. But the other point is that there hasn't been a Prime Minister since 
I think it's John Howard who won two elections in a row. So there's different bits of history mm. you can mm. pull out. It is actually a really interesting insight and it explains why trust really collapsed during that period of time. Okay, so that's Merry Christmas, Prime Minister, you're in some bother. So let's, before we think about what the Prime Minister might be able to do in order to get out of the bother, to get out of the traffic jam in inner city Sydney and think about where he's going. Given this is our last show for the year, mm. I thought just a couple of observations from the cheap seats just for jollies because yeah. listeners will have their own thoughts about this. I wanted you just to rate your high point and your low for the last political year, Peter, as a long-time strategist, participant and mm. observer. What would be your view of that? Yeah, and I guess it's a kind of have had a bit of skin in the game in a few of these. So obviously for me, the low light was the failure of the voice. I was so honoured to work alongside some really tremendous First Nations leaders and I learned a lot working with them. I think I also learned a lot about where politics is going and I think it's a tragedy that this was almost the, the run that showed us how tenuous the grip with reality our political system is and I think some of those people ended up effectively being crash test dummies in a bit of democracy that didn't really work. But I was honoured to be part of that. We ran a lot of the community engagement and I just got to learn a lot there. The other one, though, I must say is I've done a lot of work over decades in disability and to see the way the NDIS review has been both developed and come forward with what's really a significant macroeconomic reform, like a serious shift in long-term budget projections, but not by cutting, but by allowing people who are both of the disability community and trusted by the disability community to design a scheme that actually can deliver on its purpose, but also integrates with other services and has the sign-up of the states. I just, I feel like a lot of what we can learn in doing government better, we learn from people with disability. They're, they're the great innovators in our society. They're the ones that forced governments to put ramps on footpaths so mums in prams and older people with mobility issues could get up on the streets and be mobile as well. And now they're showing us how to do government better. So I, 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 it, with both those groups, I've, I've got a lot out of working with them. And I think where the NDIS has landed, um, and we are doing some work with the review over the next few weeks, even up to Christmas, to roll out some engagement around it. I think that's, for me, been my personal highlight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was, uh, I wrote a column actually about mm. the NDIS review, which was released last week. And it is, as Peter describes, a sort of example of inclusive policy reshaping. I think it's, I honestly think that's one of the highest quality pieces of work I've mm. seen for quite some period of time. And it'll mm. be really interesting to see how the governments of Australia rise to the challenge of mm. implementing that really, really constructive, mm. interesting review. What okay. about you, Murph? What, oh, what is your highlight? Oh, like? gosh. Okay. Uh, me. All right. Um, well, what I would say is sort of a highlight uh, just in general terms is that notwithstanding the sort of political position the government finds itself at the end of this year, for me, uh, sitting here for a long period of time as a political journalist and particularly through the decade of insanity, 
I'm very glad to see the return of a largely orderly, agenda-driven government, to be perfectly honest. It's such a relief because Mm. I feel like I've been hostage to a circus for a very long period of time. And so I don't feel that anymore, even though obviously... I don't also argue that things are being done perfectly, so ticks for that. Mm. And that has included some action on a number of fronts, including a big step on the uh, transformation of the energy system Mm. in Australia or a roadmap for that, which is actually really important. That's probably Mm. one of the most important sort of policy developments in that space for for a decade, and we've seen that over the last month or two. So that's sort of been good. And my low won't surprise Peter is also the defeat of The Voice, (laughs) largely because of how we got to that landing point. It was a difficult campaign to cover because Mm. it was sort of like a constant battle against overstatement and misinformation. And it ultimately was a battle that that we lost. We in my profession lost. I'm just going to be honest about yeah, that. Yeah, it, it totally exposed some um, issues around the whole ecosystem of media politics, the digital platforms, and I think make all of us wonder how much we're players and how much we're being played sometimes, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't, uh, you, mm. you'd have to say it's not a high point. Just quickly, because we're always on the clock, mm. did you have a standout kind of performer and someone who underwhelmed? Well, I actually had a tight five of non-ministers that I thought made a real contribution. Firstly, Deb O'Neill and Barbara Pocock for exposing mm. the um, PwC and then taking their inquiry deeper into the big four world of consultancy. Like that is what Senate inquiries should do. I do want to call out both Julian Lisa and Andrew G, who made significant personal commitments that people on the other side of politics don't need to do for their commitment to First Nations justice. And I also just, I'm, I'm totally at admire the broad shoulders of David Pocock sitting in such a pivotal role in the Senate. And so for somebody that's new to politics, so much pressure, like, I guess it reminds you of the old Keith Miller line when he was asked if it was pressure batting for Australia. And he said, well, when you've been fighting the war as a a fighter pilot, then you know what pressure is. Like this guy has played body contact sport and he seems to handle it like he's been doing it all his life. So I think there's been some really good contributions. That probably talks the way that while we talk about the cage fight of politics, there is good stuff going on. And it is at its heart, a progressive parliament. It just sometimes looks like it's the old cage fight. You know, it could be easy to say underperformers, you know, I hated what the choices that were made by Dutton and his front bench to derail the voice, but you know, that's what that's what they do. So, But I'd prefer to focus on those that made the contribution, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, let's do that and I'll just do mine quickly before we sort of quickly mm. think about the, the the year ahead. Mine it was similar, actually, a similar list. Uh, I would just add to Lisa and G, and I totally support what you've said about both of them. They took, uh, they were very brave at a time when they could have done something else. Mm. I would add Bridget Archer to that list. Indeed. Who who also campaigned for The Voice, but more broadly uh, is a person who sticks out her neck constantly on things that she thinks are important and matter to her constituents, and I don't think she does it for attention-grabbing reasons. I think she just comes 
to the place and tries to be the best representative she can be. And I think we need more of that, not less. So I concur with your list, but I'd add Bridget to it. So, okay, let's then think about what the Prime Minister needs to do in order to change the dynamic. Let's just, Mm. let's make that our final conundrum. Well, what do you think? I don't, is he a man of faith? Uh, he's a Catholic. Uh, pray? Like, I think, like, I'm not being flippant there. I think <laughs> partly interest rates stopping going up and maybe dropping. I hear that there are projections that energy prices drop. Like, it might be just as the difficulties have been on such circumstances outside the government's control. Some of it might, some of the, the recovery may also be outside the government's control. I don't think I'm telling anyone anything that they're not already thinking about, but I just think being saddled to the idea of cost of living, as we said a few weeks ago, is too broad and they've got to chunk it down. So you've got a cost of housing, you've got a cost of energy, you've got a cost of groceries, cost of raising kids, and actually chunk it down and look at where government can make a difference and when they can work with groups in society to make a difference. So the work that's going on with early learning is actually cost of living, like to make childcare universal and free is actually a cost of living measure, but it, it kind of doesn't feel like it. Or when it is trotted out, it's done as if it's a, one of a shopping list of things they're doing or they've already done. Energy transition is about creating longer term, cheaper energy. Working out a way of mediating the power disparity between those that hold capital and those that are not in the property market. I think that the trick is to think about some of these measures as mini camp, not even a campaign, but but mini challenges. So you chunk it down. You know, when you've got a really big challenge, you chunk it down to little pieces. And I just feel like that's probably the best chance of getting back to where they'd want to be in the run up to the the election, which was probably sort of midway through 2025. Mm, Yeah, on current indications. Okay, so break down the cost of living challenges into sort of distinct entities is is how you think things would be, well, you think that'd be the foundation of a reset, basically. Well, at least it means if if we are, like, let's face it, like most people when they're under financial stress, are going to talk about things that are in front of them. But retail politics just doesn't mean throwing money at people. It just means explaining mm. it in a in a language that means something to, to mm, them. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's sort of notable, you know, one of the pluses of this government is that they're very decentralised and ministers are getting about their businesses and in, in a political communication sense it can be a minus because the story's not really being brought together in a way that meets the voters where they're at at this point in time. The Prime Minister gives the impression that he's sticking with the game plan that he thought he would implement after the election. And I think the voting public are in a different place now Mm. than they were 12 months ago. Can I just do one more bit? Because I don't want to leave it on just breaking it. I think the other thing is there's a sense that government is out there away from people and how do you bring government back closer to people? And I I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think that's the broader challenge in terms of building a cohesive, progressive society. And just for a little ad, if I can, at the end, we're really honoured to have launched the centre of the public square with per capita last week, and it's something I'm going to be doing a lot of work on next year, just thinking about ways that we can do this stuff better. 
Mm, interesting. All right. Well, Peter, thank you, as always, for sterling services to polls, to our friendship and to the listeners by participating in this project for all of the year, including a great big chunk of time when I was away. Thank you. I appreciate you and uh, appreciate the value that you add to our listeners and to the group of people who rally around this podcast. God bless you all. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the EP of this show. And thank you to the lovely Emily Bird, who is producing the episode this week. There will be another, a final episode of Australian politics for the year on Saturday. I'm gathering the team in the pod cave to answer all of your questions. Don't forget to email us. Have a look at my X account if you want to see the email address. If you've got a question, get it in fast or talk to me on the platform formerly known as Twitter or wherever else you find me. We will be endeavouring to answer your questions for the final show of the year. We will see you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.